The following podcast is from Tabernacle Baptist Church in Cartersville, Georgia. Thanks for listening. I want to invite you, if you have a copy of God's Word, to find your place at Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13, and this morning I want us to look at verses 32 through 37. I'd planned to preach this message two weeks ago, so it's been simmering in my soul, and I might preach for an hour today. Just joking. So we will conclude this morning in Mark chapter 13, looking at Jesus' teaching on the end of times. Next week, I'm going to bring a message on missions giving, on stewardship, and encourage us to be a generous and faithful church in the area of giving. Give you the heads up in case you don't want to be here for that sermon, all right? But always excited to preach on stewardship and to remind us that God loves a cheerful giver. And then during uh, the month of December, we'll be looking at Christmas and the cross from Mark's gospel and Mark chapter 14. In the passage before us, Jesus teaches his disciples concerning how to wait for his return. And we're reminded from the word of God that Jesus wants his followers to know how to be prepared for the end of time. Know this about Jesus' teaching on the end of time. He isn't so much concerned about us knowing when he will return. His desire is for us to be prepared for his return. The Lord wants his followers, his children, to be armed, equipped, and ready for his second advent, his second coming. You see, this is a part of spiritual maturity in your life. You being ready for Jesus to appear in the sky. You being ready for the end of all things. You see, Jesus knows this. If you want to keep your spiritual sanity and your emotional wits as you navigate life in this fallen world, you need to hear the words of Jesus this morning and you need to be ready for his return. The Lord knows this, Jesus knows if we want to pursue true holiness, if we want to have real Christian obedience in our lives, if we want to be people of the truth, shining for Jesus in this lost and unregenerate world, we need to know how to be ready for the end. We need to know how to wait for Jesus' return. Now, does anybody like waiting on anything? I had to wait over the last 14 days to be cleared to return to the general populace, right? This morning I got in my car and I felt like, I don't know if I'm going to remember how to drive. I haven't been out of the house in two weeks. So we know that it's difficult to wait in life, but hear me this morning, Jesus isn't concerned with you knowing a schedule or a timeline concerning end time events. I mean, there's things he wants you to know. Hear this from Mark chapter 13. His main priority is for you to have a humble disposition of the soul, a pursuit of holiness in which you know how to wait well for the culmination of all things. How can we best wait for Jesus' return? Believe Jesus tells us in our text this morning. And he gives us three reminders that can help us wait for his second coming. Let me give them to you. First of all, Jesus gives us this reminder. Remember, number one, remember, you don't know when Christ will return. 
You don't know when Christ will return. You don't know the precise time. We don't know the precise time. The word of God does not tell us the precise occasion in which Jesus will come to earth for a second time. Now, Pastor Don joked earlier that I was going to tell you this morning when Christ will return. Newsflash, I don't have the ability to do that. We don't know when Christ will return. And Jesus wants you to know that you don't know when Christ will return. Look at verse number 32 of what our Lord says. He says, now concerning that day, everybody say those two words, that day. Uh, That's prophetic language throughout the Bible. You find it often in the book of Isaiah. And that day refers to the end of time. Now concerning that day or hour, everybody say that word hour. That's prophetic language that refers to a time of judgment. Jesus will use it later in Mark chapter 14, verse 35, when he prays that the hour of the crucifixion might pass from him. This is language referring to judgment. And it's a reminder that one day the righteous judge Jesus is returning to earth to make all things right. He's going to return planet earth to his original intent for humanity. There will be no more sin or suffering. There will be no more disasters or deception upon the earth. There will be no more death or dying. You see, sin has corrupted creation. But God had a plan since Genesis 3.15 to make all things new. He sent his son Jesus Christ to live the perfect life no man could ever live. And that Jesus died as a substitute, as a sacrifice for all of humankind. And when he died, he went into a borrowed tomb. And three days later, he got up from the grave, proving that he is God and dealing a death blow to sin, death, and Satan forever. And Jesus Christ, according to the word of God, is right now ascended to the right hand of God. And he sits ruling over all of creation. And there is an hour coming in which he will come to earth and he will judge every sinner and all sin. Why? He's got to make all things right. He's got a plan in human history to return earth to his original intent. And Jesus speaks of that hour. Now concerning that day, judgment, and that hour, judgment, no one knows. Neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, you can scan on your TV, you can surf the web, you can search on YouTube, and you can find plenty of Johnny-come-lately teachers who will tell you when the end is coming. In 1988, there was an individual who wrote a book, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1988. I don't remember y'all, but did the rapture happen in 1988? I don't think so. Because I remember the Braves went to the World Series in 1991. 88 reasons. There's the cover of the book. That looks legit, right? Why the rapture will be in 1988. 
recently with this coronavirus pandemic on YouTube, there's been this pastor, Dana Coverstone, who has started quite a sensation with his report of dreams and prophecies he's had that the end is coming soon. We need to brace ourselves here in 2020, he says. Now, such individuals are never in short supply. Individuals saying that they know when the end will come. Notice Jesus says that neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, not even Jesus while he was on earth, knew the exact time when he would return. Now some here would say, what does Jesus mean by the fact that he did not know when he would return? Some would even say, does this mean he isn't God? Well, we know throughout Mark's gospel, Mark 1.11, Mark 2.10, Mark 2.28, and Mark 9.7, the gospel writer has continually depicted Jesus as God. Understand this in your theology. When Jesus was on earth, he was 100% God, 100% man. There's a doctrine theologians refer to as the hypostatic union. You don't need to know that word, but you do need to know this. When Jesus was on earth, 100% God, 100% man. And know this, according to the Bible, if you understand Scripture, John 6, 38, in being human and taking upon himself humanity, Jesus subjected himself to the will of the heavenly Father. Philippians 2, 5 through 10, he did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but he humbled himself and took upon himself the fashion of a man. Then taking upon himself humanity, Jesus embraced while he was on earth a subordinate role through the incarnation. One has said ignorance of certain things was simply a part of Jesus' humanity, a part of his becoming a real human so that he could suffer and die and pay for the sins of real humans like us. Notice the meaning of Jesus' words here. He means to stress this reality. Only God the Father, only the heavenly Father knows the exact timing of Christ's return. Now, I believe Christ now at the right hand of God is part of the triune God, the Trinity, now indeed knows. But here is the point of our text. Only the Lord knows exactly when the end will come. So Christians, believers, should stay silent on dates and deadlines. We should be humble and careful with all of our charts and graphs and end times estimations. The Lord never intended for us to know with precision when he will return. Conspiracies and controversies will rage. They have gripped the church throughout the ages. However, we're reminded from Jesus that date-setting sensationalism is not to be our priority or our prerogative. Our Lord here tells us plainly that we can't know the exact date of his return. And the Lord's made it this way in his divine wisdom. Why? Can you imagine if in the first century, the early church would have known that Jesus wasn't returning for thousands of years? What would have happened to their missionary zeal? What would have happened when they began to face Nero's cruel threats? They might have given in to despair, depression, discouragement, and despondency. 
So the Lord in great wisdom has concealed these things from us. And no church this morning, the Lord doesn't want you to be focused on dates and end times predictions. We're reminded this morning with little Lottie on the stage, he wants us to be consumed with missionary and missions and evangelism zeal. The Lord isn't concerned with you knowing exactly when he will return. He wants you to be walking in humility and holiness and the fear of the Lord, shining as a light for him in this generation. The Lord in his wisdom has concealed these things. He knows, he knew that an answer concerning when he will return would not help the church in any way whatsoever. In fact, if we had the answer, it would likely be detrimental to our spiritual well-being and his glory. So he conceals these things. Now, although no one can know when Christ will return, our next verse, number 33, teaches us we should still live with the spirit of readiness. Look at what he says in verse 33. He says, watch, be alert, for you don't know when the time is coming. This command here, be alert, literally meant chase away sleep. To chase away sleep. I remember when Laura and I first met, I cleaned office buildings in the evening. I mean, like at night, like through the night. Like left at 10 p.m., went down to Buckhead and cleaned the Aaron's Rents Towers. If you ever see the Aaron Rents Tower downtown, just think my pastor used to clean that thing. My pastor used to scrub the toilets in there. But I'd go down and clean that office building at night, take me all night to clean it. Many times I would have to force myself to stay awake and drink coffee all night, chase away sleep to stay awake. Jesus is using a first century verb in the Koine Greek that speaks of such an activity. As we live on this earth, it's like we've got to regularly fight off the sleep. This world wants to lull us to apathy, to make us forget God. We've got to stay awake and be alert. No believer should use the unknowability of Christ's return as an excuse for spiritual laziness. Instead, Jesus teaches us to stay on guard. And this is the teaching of the New Testament. Continually, 2 Peter 1.9 tells us we also have the prophetic word strongly confirmed. So know this, there is some strong stuff about the end of times in the Bible. There is a degree of knowability, but ultimately we are bound by a degree of unknowability. And as a result, Peter says, you will do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So how can we wait for Christ's return? Remember this morning, you don't know when Christ will return. Don't get caught up in all of the sensationalism that's out there. Remember, the secret things belong to the Lord, as Deuteronomy tells us. Number two this morning, how can we wait for the Lord's return? We need to remember, secondly, that we've been given an assignment. 
Jesus, if he was here this morning and giving direct orders to us and clear teaching, he'd say, remember, you can't know when I'm going to return. But number two, he would say, remember, you have been given an assignment. We know according to Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the church exists for this great reason, to go into all the world and make disciples. We know Mark 16, 15, we are to proclaim or preach the gospel to all the creation. We know Acts 1, 8, we have been called to go into all the world to be witnesses of Christ in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. That means as I live my life, I'm not just about my family, my wife, and my career, my job. It means through all of that, I am seeking to be a representative of Christ and speak the gospel to other people. It means as I go out to restaurants, I'm looking to witness to my waiter or waitress. That means as I coach or I'm involved in Little League Baseball. I'm thinking, who can I share the gospel with on my team? How can I introduce parents to Jesus? That means as I live in my neighborhood, I'm thinking about my neighbor to my right, my neighbor to my left, and I'm seeking to be a loving light of Jesus to them. You're to be doing the same things, believer. This is why you're alive. This is why blood is pulsating throughout your body. This is why oxygen is feeling your lungs this morning. This is why the Spirit of God is within you. He wants you to let your light so shine before men that they may see your Father in heaven and glorify him in the day of visitation. Now look at how Jesus speaks of this. Jesus doesn't give charts and outlines here talking about the end, he appeals to the need for his disciples to be on mission. And he gives, starting in verse 34, what we could call a little mini parable. I love Jesus' parable. I never saw this before. I love his parables. Here he gives what we would call a mini parable. Verse number 34, he gives the parable saying, it is like a man on a journey who left his house, gave authority to his servants, gave each one his work, and commanded the doorkeeper, to be alert. Therefore, be alert, since you don't know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening or at midnight or at the crowing of the rooster or early in the morning. Now look at this short mini-parable Jesus gives. Starting in verse 34, we see a scene involving a house. Everybody say that word, house. Well, what does the house represent in this mini parable, you could circle the word house and draw a line out to the margin of your Bible and write the word church. Because throughout the Gospel of Mark, Mark has used homes, houses, places of residences as a figure for the church. Mark 1.29, 2.15, Mark 7.24, 9.33, Mark 10.10. Think about a first century world, late first century Roman Empire, Gentile readership. Many of churches in the Roman world met in houses. And Mark has used, writing to Gentile readers, homes as an object to represent the secret underground church. And here in his parables, he, this mini parable, he uses the house to represent the church. So he says it's like a man on a journey who left 
his house. And he gave authority to his servants. He gave each one his work. Now the simple question now is if the house is the church, who are the servants in this many parable? They are none other, we believe, than New Testament believers. We are referred to the doulos of Christ, the slaves of Christ throughout the New Testament. And here that picture remains true. We're depicted here as being left by Jesus here in our house, the church, to do his work. We have this work of the Great Commission And the New Testament teaches that believers at salvation each receive a unique spiritual gift, Romans 12, 6 through 9, that Christ intends for each of us to use within the church in order to make Christ known and to share the gospel with the world. A gift came into your soul, John 3, 3, when you were born again. Some of you have teaching. Some of you have the gift of leading. Some of you have the gift of showing mercy or compassion. Some of you have the gift of service. Some of you have the gift of charity and giving. Find out what your gift is and get involved in your local church. And you leverage your gift to make Christ known and to share the gospel. So Jesus here speaks of the house. He speaks of servants. And then he commands, look at the end of verse 34, he commands the doorkeeper to be alert. Everybody say that word doorkeeper. I remember taking a mission trip one time to Moldova in southeastern Europe and house at which I was staying had a dog tied up on the post right in front of the door. Now, a group of Americans being there after lunch, we saw this dog. He looked really emaciated. I mean, you could see his ribs. He was mean, too. Anybody walked by, that joker barked, went berserk. I remember one of our American people with us seeing that dog, and he thought, boy, this dog hasn't eaten in a while, and started to feed the dog some of his leftover lunch. One of the natives stepped in, no, 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 no. Don't feed that dog. Number one, that's foods for us. We don't give good food to a dog. That's a waste. But number two, we need him to remain on edge. He is our doorbell. If anybody comes by, he lets us know. It's always on edge. The dog keeping the door. Now in a first century world, first century Roman household, there would be a servant, an indentured slave, who would be given the responsibility to stay at the door, to be a doorkeeper. This doorkeeper had the task of excluding unwanted visitors, welcoming and receiving in desired visitors into the household and keeping the household safe. Who is the doorkeeper in our illustration? The house is the church, the servants, the members of the household, the body of Christ. The doorkeeper, many believe here, would be the apostles and 
the pastors and their tradition, those who have Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, been given oversight by the Lord, the head of the church, and the body of Christ with overseeing the doctrine and the teaching of the church and the leadership of the church's ministry. And here is a reminder in the text as we wait for Christ's return, we're to remember that we're a part of a house, that we're all servants and we have spiritual gifts and we are to have an expectation of our doorkeepers, our spiritual leaders to be faithful in proclaiming the pure word of God and to be faithful in leading the church in missions and in ministry. Seems here Jesus' parable makes mention of the doorkeeper to remind us of the biblical precedent for pastors and of the biblical requirement for them to be faithful in shepherding the Lord's flock. We're reminded in this mini parable of the plain teaching of Scripture in 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 2, where the Lord through Paul told Timothy, I charge you before God and Christ Jesus, pastor, who is going to judge the living and the dead and because of his appearing in kingdom, notice the end times language, preach the word, proclaim the gospel, be ready in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and teaching. We've been given an assignment. We're part of this house, the local church. We're all servants in Christ's body and we have spiritual gifts. And our pastors have been called to minister the word to the body and to lead in gospel endeavors. Notice one last person in the text. He's really mentioned first Verse number 34, where it says it, where Jesus said it's like a man on a journey. Then he's mentioned again in verse number 35, where Jesus says, therefore, be alert since you don't know when the master of the house is coming. Who is the master of the house in our text? It is none other than King Jesus. And he is returning again to his house. He is returning again for his church. And he wants to see individual servants who aren't just spectators in the body of Christ. They are participators. He wants to to see you, servant, knowing what your spiritual gift is and using it to make him known. And he wants to find his doorkeepers, the pastors, preaching the pure, simple word of God and leading the church to fulfill its ministry. We have been given an assignment. And Christ's teaching reminds us that we need to be faithful to fulfill that assignment. The early fourth century Christian theologian Jerome was known for regularly saying in his sermons, be doing something that the devil may always find you engaged. I would add to that and say, Christian, always be doing something every week to witness, every week to disciple, every week to shine your light so that when Jesus returns, he may find you engaged. Church history tells of how John Calvin later in his life was told when he was aged by his good Christian friends, you need to relax and retire You're working too hard. You've done too much for the kingdom. And Calvin said, would you have my master find me idle when he returns? Get the spirit of the church fathers and get the spirit of the New Testament and get the teaching of Jesus. 
When he returns, he desires to find his house, his servants, his doorkeeper, all laboring faithfully to make him known. Remember, we've been given an assignment. Number three, and lastly this morning, I want you to see this great truth from our text. How can we wait for the Lord's return? Remember, nobody knows. We can't know when Christ exactly will return. Remember, we've been given an assignment. Number three, I'd have you see from the Bible, we will be required to give an account to God. We see this in verses 35 through 37 as the Bible says this, therefore be alert since you don't know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening or at midnight or at the crowing of the rooster or early in the morning. Otherwise, when he comes, suddenly he might find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to everyone, be alert. So we see this third truth here. We will be required to give an account to God. Now look at how Jesus speaks of this in verse 36. He says, otherwise, when he comes suddenly, he might find you sleeping. Everybody say that word suddenly. Now, some think this word suddenly means Jesus is going to return quickly or that Jesus is going to return soon. From the perspective of the apostles, that could not be true. It's been 2,000 years, even as Peter wrote. Go read Peter's letters. In 2 Peter, he deals with this issue where people within the first century church were complaining. Where's Jesus? He said he was going to return. He's delaying his promise. There was actually a false teaching during the first century in which some said Jesus had already returned secretly. And the apostles, when they wrote their letters, had to debunk that false teaching. So this word suddenly doesn't necessarily mean that Jesus was going to return quickly or soon. Instead, it conveyed the idea that once the signs of the times began to appear, Jesus would then appear rapidly. It conveyed the idea of the master arriving soon after the servants in the many parables saw the signs of his return. The imagery fits perfectly with Jesus' teaching on the end times. Remember, the disciples back in Mark 13, 4 had this question. Look there in your Bible. Just turn back to Mark 13, 4. They said, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So the disciples had asked Jesus for, a sign, for the signs of the time. And then Jesus, throughout Mark 13, tells them about near signs, first century signs that would accompany the dawn of the church age. Then he gave them some end time signs. Remember in Mark 13, there are, there are near prophecies, things that were for the first century. Then there were far prophecies, things for the far off future. And by speaking of the master returning suddenly, Jesus meant to emphasize the importance of the signs of which he spoke. 
He meant to say that, hey, you as disciples, though you don't know exactly when Jesus is going to return, when you see some of these signs that I'm talking about, wars and rumors of wars and things like that, you will know that Christ could then appear at any moment. This is something that we call the imminent return of Christ. It's this idea that Christ could appear at any time during the church age. He could appear suddenly. So as a result, Jesus says, verse 36, what I say to you, I say to everyone, be alert. Be alert. Take those two words, be alert and realize this, and all of the end times teaching you have in the Bible, those are perhaps the two most important words. When's the rapture going to be, pastor? Be alert. How long's the millennium going to be? Be alert. I mean, I can talk to you about all of those things, but know this, in all of Jesus' end times teaching here in verse 13, those two words, be alert, appear coupled together five different times. If Jesus repeats those words so often, it stands to reason that this is very important teaching when it comes to the end end of times. Jesus repeats these words in verse 5, verse 9, verse 23, verse 33, and verse 35. He uses a second person plural form of the verb. Thus he's addressing a multitude of individuals. And look how he says it at the end. He says, what I say to you, that's the disciples, I say to everyone. That's everyone throughout the church age. Be alert. Jesus means to show that verse chapter 13 didn't just have meaning for his disciples. It had meaning for believers of every age. And Jesus' emphasis the way in which he repeats this command should leave a mark on us. And all of our study of end time events and all of the speculation that's out there in Christendom, we should walk away with this sober Holy Spirit awareness that the Lord wants us to be people who are continually spiritually attentive. He wants us to be people who are walking in the word, regularly searching scriptures, ready for his return. He wants us to be people of prayer, not just people who speak of prayer, but who actually get on our knees daily and regularly and seek the Lord through prayer. He wants us to be people who are warring, making war on the pride and the sin, the subtle sin in our own souls and our own lives. He wants us to be people fighting against materialistic greed and sensual lust and pride. He wants us to be people who are aligning our life priorities and our schedules and our calendars with his kingdom and leveraging all that we have and all that we are to make him known. Jesus wants us to do all of this realizing that we will be one day required to give an account to the Lord. John Wesley was once asked a question. He was once asked if the Lord was to return Tomorrow, what things would you have on your to-do list? He was known to carry around a little piece of paper with his to-do list, and it said that he simply pulled out that to-do list and said, these are the things 
I would do tomorrow. The things that were already on my list are the things that I would do tomorrow if the Lord was to return. Wesley stands as an example that we should make sure that everything that's on our to-do list, everything that's on our calendar, everything that's on our schedule is in alignment with the word, the will, the ways of God. This is how Jesus wants us to live until he returns. God's people should make sure that all of their activities are in alignment with God's will. They should prioritize as if each day would be their last, knowing that we will be required to give an account to God. When I was in college, I worked for a couple years at Chick-fil-A, and I was pretty immature. I mean, I still got some immaturity about me. We've all got a little immaturity about us, right? But I was super immature then. And I remember Mrs. Gossman, the, the owner, the operator of that Chick-fil-A, she was pretty strict. She'd make us walk a line. She'd worked for Eastern Airlines here in Atlanta for years and was hired by, Chick, by Chick-fil-A, by Truett himself, to manage uh, one of the Chick-fil-A's in the mall, a mall here in Atlanta when they were still just in the malls. And then she moved down to Pensacola, Florida, her and her husband, when Chick-fil-A started to venture out and as they went into Florida. And I remember she was really strict and I didn't like a lot of that strictness and she had all these rules. She was very precise about how we dressed those older Chick-fil-A uniforms. I mean, they had to be to the T and had to be clean and uh, very strict on uh, customs and manners about the, uh, within the restaurant, the workers. And I remember I was complained on once for uh, being a smart aleck to a lady who was checking out. And boy, I really got in trouble for that with Mrs. Uh, Gossman. She really raked me over the coals. But I'll never forget, she entrusted me finally with managing the evening shift and closing the restaurant. And I remember she would leave about five or six each day. And when Mrs. Gossman uh, left, I thought, you know, when she leaves, I'm going to go out to my car and get my stereo and put some music on back here. Man, I hate wearing this uniform. I'm going to get some basketball shorts and some flip-flops. I'll even turn my Chick-fil-A hat around backward and just relax back here as I manage behind the... Hey, if y'all are wondering if I've got a good work ethic as a pastor, don't listen to this story at all, all right? But I'll never forget forget that night there's a back door on the store when I decided to do all that. I'm sitting there and I'm doing dishes and cleaning up and everybody's out in the front line, I'm supposed to be managing them and I see the door handle turn on the door, the back door. There's only one other person that's got a key to that door. It's Mrs. Gossman. I remember she opens that door and sees me there with flip-flops, basketball shorts, a hat on backwards and music playing real loud. I'll never forget the look on her face. And I felt so much shame. And she actually shamed me a little bit. I trusted you. Now, I don't want you to think about Jesus returning in an unhealthy sense of shame, but I want to remind you, the master of the house is returning one day. And he's entrusted us with a lot. And he loves us. He's bought us with his blood. He's washed us. He's made us clean. He's put his spirit within us. He's given us the hope of heaven. And he's entrusted us and he's given us a job and he's trusting us to live this life, to love him, to love others and to make him known. Oh, let's not from guilt or intimidation, let's from a heart of love, Matthew 22, 37 through 40, be committed to him and be serious about him 
And let's seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And let's walk with him. Let's make much of him. Let's be a church. Let's not get caught up in all these church games that are out there. Let's get real simple and realize what we've been called to do. We've been called to simply live the Christian life in humility and holiness and then make him known. That's it. And let's be committed to that. Let's be what God wants us to be. And as we walk away from teaching on the end of times, let's let this command be alert. Five times, let's let that command be foremost in our minds. For more information, visit us online at tabernaclebaptist.org. Thanks for listening.